I'm Tony Tardio. Hello and welcome to Darren Hinch's That's Life podcast, a podcast where we talk about the big stories of the past, the big stories of today, through the prism of Hinch's six decades in the media. Darren Hinch, welcome again to uh, That's Life. Good day, good afternoon, good evening, whoever, what time you're listening. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. What, what would you do for love and what would, what, well, you've done many, All right. thi- you've okay, done many things the, for love. <laughs> the death of meatloaf, okay. Michael Lee Aday, his real name was, um, and I was shocked that he died, even though he was about 74. Uh, just came as a surprise to a lot of people. I would do anything for love, but I won't do that. My immediate reaction... Um, sorry, was that uh, it was about anal sex? <laughs> that never even crossed my mind. There you go. Well, the first thing that crossed my mind was was um, was anal sex. Right? Um, <laughs> I'll do anything for love, but I won't do that. But I've since read since he died. I've done a lot of reading about him, and I've forgotten the name of his his, his, his writer, um, Stephen um, Jim Steinman, wasn't it? Jim Steinman, Steinman, yeah, that's it. Who, who yeah. died? Uh, uh, who died in April? Yeah, yeah, so they've died within months of each other. They were a great combination. But I've since read uh, that Meatloaf explained the song and finally explained what he wouldn't do for love, and it had nothing to do with anal sex. So I'm glad to hear. Um, Steinman, he said, wrote complicated lyrics and a lot of lyrics and a lot of songs. He said, and actually, in that song, I sing the line, I won't do that, seven times. But each time it meant something different and tied to something else that, that, that he'd written about. And it was like, uh, I'll never forget I love you, I won't do that, right? Um, we, we didn't have sex last night. It doesn't worry me. I, I, I won't do that. Um, so if you listen to the song and analyse it more closely, he... He's singing different lines, the same line about different issues, about which is which reconfirms his love for the woman in his life. All right, so it's does that makes sense. Yeah, yeah, it does. So it's it's romantic. It's not about angels. It's very romantic. No, no, it's romantic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> didn't didn't that cross your mind? No, what, I, I, I don't know you, what. what well, I, what I, did you think it well I'm not sure what I, 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 I guess I, I just question, well, you know, what wouldn't he do for love? You know, I don't know, fly around the world or something like I don't know. Yeah, you, you would, I've flown around the world for love. Of course you would. Yeah, well, I remember uh, Bert Newton, who died uh, last year, yeah. uh, Pete Smith was telling me that uh, when he met Patty, uh, you know, and she was singing on some cruise ship in the Mediterranean uh, and he, Bert had heard that uh, she was seeing somebody else, he got on a plane back in the 70s, wasn't a cheap thing to do, flew all the way over, got on the cruise ship and knocked on her door unannounced, got onto his, <laughs> got onto his knees and professed his love to her. So, Good call. Uh, I like that. I like that. Well, I, I flew with my first wife. I flew all the way from uh, uh, Sydney to Montreal to rendezvous with her. She'd been in Europe with her mother, and I surprised him. And I, I moved to Montreal to, to where she was going to start working, and 
we both got jobs in Montreal and both got jobs in Toronto. And then, but you must have known when you flew over there that uh, you know it wasn't like something a guess, like is she going to like me or not? Uh, you know, you, you hear about all these cases of people who, uh, uh, you know, ask someone to marry them, you know, at the baseball or something. And and uh, there was one case there where she said no, no. <laughs> well, I, well, funny enough, I was only writing about this recently about Lana, uh, my first wife. Um, when I arrived in Australia um, and got a job in the Sydney Sun as a police reporter, she was working in what they called Sun Women's. Right? And she was a young, pretty reporter on Sun Women's department. And So, sorry, were you her boss? No, shit, no. I was a 19, 19-20-year-old reporter pretending to be 25. Right. Um, and so I... Uh, but you I'd both worked together at the same paper, but a different division of the different, paper, right? Different departments, yeah. And so I'd see her walking down the corridor, etc. Anyway, being from New Zealand, I'd never been to a restaurant for dinner. I mean, I'd been to the pub and had steaks and chips, you know, <laughs> at, the lo- at the local fish and chip joint after too many beers. So that was the, that was the basic meal. Steak and chips. So you can pinpoint the time that you first went to a restaurant for a meal. Yes, Yes, I was, uh, and I was just writing about this the other day for my new book. I um, I said to Lana, "You pick a restaurant. Look, I'd love to take you out for a dinner. Um, uh, you pick a restaurant, and and it's my shout." And she picked the Sukiyaki restaurant in Kings Cross in Sydney, a Japanese joint. Now I'm about nineteen, pretend to be twenty five, and pretend to be very worldly. Um, but you'd never been I'm, to a restaurant. I'd never been to a restaurant. <laughs> No, I'd never eaten with chopsticks. So I'm sitting in a Japanese restaurant. <laughs> I'm sitting in a Japanese restaurant. I didn't know that people ate raw meat, right? I didn't know that people ate raw egg. I didn't know that people dropped a piece of raw meat and a piece of raw egg and ate that. And they did it with sukiyaki that night. And so I did. I thought, I can't pretend I don't know how to do this. So then I am sitting eating raw meat and raw eggs. <laughs> In a Japanese restaurant with a young girl, I'm trying to impress. Right, so I must have impressed her because four years later she married me. So, <laughs> it reminds me of Bill Hayden when he was at a banquet in China uh, with uh, you know Chinese leaders and whatever, mm. and he sees this bowl, and he drinks from it. <laughs> he drinks from it, and he goes on and eats. And then during the night or during the meal, he realizes that people were putting fingers in the in the bowl. <laughs> he drank a finger bowl. Yeah. Well. Well, look, in China, it's very daunting because I went there with, with Paul Barber, my producer, and Darren James, and we had umpteen banquets. Two things stick out in my mind all these years later. The Chinese knew exactly when to leave. They devoured immense amounts of food at these banquets at lunch, and then like clockwork, one would give the signal, and they'd all just get up and leave. That was the time that the banquet was over. Mm. And you couldn't embarrass your host, so you ate whatever they put in front of you. And at one time, we're sitting there, and they gave us fish head soup. And in my bowl, suddenly an eye floated to the surface. <laughs> at least it didn't wink at me, but I thought, you've got to sort of eat it or eat around it. You, you, and so, yeah, I had a bowl of fish fish head soup with a floating eye. Was, yeah. But the, the night with Lana at the, at the sukiyaki, I can tell you, I've, I've never forgotten it. That was, that was in... That was in the 1960s. Yeah, yeah well, we're, we're talking about meatloaf. Uh, did you ever All make right, meatloaf? meatloaf? Because I, I, I actually did, but you, you, you tell me your story if you've met okay. him. I never met meatloaf, but I have a great meatloaf story because when I was at the 3X Woy, 
five to nine, fine and mild. Um, I Meatloaf was a huge hit at the Bad Out of Hell had just been released, right? So this is about 1978. Well, it came out in 77, but it still lingered on to 1978. Big in 78. It was the number one hit album here. And so I wanted to talk to Meatloaf. And I knew he was staying in a hotel in Germany. So I called the hotel and they put me through to the kitchen. <laughs> so I, I didn't ever get to talk to Meatloaf, but uh, there we were. Did you, now, did you, you know, sorry. Did you put the recording of the, the attempt on, on air? Well, that would have been pretty funny. I, I, I think, yeah, I think we did. I think we did, yeah. The, you, you, know, you know where he got his name. There's several versions and he's, he's responsible for most of them. Um, he, when he was a kid, he uh, used to play football. And and he, 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 he was quite fat, and he stayed that way. But he he rolled over on one of his teammates or another player, and the player supposedly said, "Get off of me, you big oaf, you big meatloaf!" Right. Another version that he gave once was that he he trod on his coach's foot, and the coach said, "Get off, you bloody meatloaf!" And so he took the name meatloaf and meat. A lot of people called him meat. Um, his original name, I think, we, I called him Michael Lee Aday. His original name was Marvin. Marvin, yes. Yeah, and somebody, some song came out or something came out which which denigrated the name Marvin and he hated it. And so he legally eventually changed his name from Marvin Lee Aday to Michael Lee Aday. Um, and, and I noticed, I think, that he's, when he died, his wife, in a beautiful um, tribute, called him Michael. So I guess that's what, they, what he was known as. But look, the sad thing about Meatloaf was that for many Australians, especially Melburnians, will remember him for a disastrous grand final rendition. Um, and uh, he's apologized, he apologised for it afterwards. But it was partly his fault, but partly not. From what I've heard over the years, A, he'd had a big night the night before. Right? So he may have been a bit hungover. But B, he had technical problems and couldn't hear couldn't hear the band behind him, you know, the backup. And so, I mean, it was a total disaster. And it wasn't the, uh, it wasn't the meatloaf that I remember. I mean, I even last night, I one of my favourite songs of all time is Two Out of Three Ain't Bad. Um, and uh, I play it oh, three or four times a week. I think it's a beautiful song, you know. That whole album has, I mean, Bad Out of Hell itself is, a, you put it up really loud and it just does something to your brain cells. Uh, Paradise by the Dash Light, is that? Uh, is Paradise it? by the Dashboard Light. Dashboard um, Light, yeah. Um, well, that's, that was based on a personal experience where as a young Catholic, um, Meatloaf had sex in a car with a teenage girl, right? And that's where the song came from. Uh, I, I my my I love this. I played it again today the other day to remind me. Um, it's very explicit. They've got baseball terms in it. He got the first base, as every young man knows about when he's when he's groping a girl. Does he get the first base or second base, etc.? That's all in the song. I remember going back to Three X Roy. I, uh, I I was playing a Meatloaf song, probably Bat Out of Hell, and Paradise by the Dashboard Light was banned in Australia, not played on radio at all, and. By mistake and being so technically adept, I segued into Paradise by the Dashboard Light and we played about two minutes of it before we worked out how we could get it off. <laughs> <laughs> so suddenly, suddenly 3XY is booming out 
paralyzed by the dash. Do you love me? I'll tell you. Let, you, let me know in the morning. You know. <laughs> he uh, he so came into three uh, AW would have been about ten years ago, mm. and uh, I just went up to him and uh, said, oh, "I've always loved Bat Out of Hell, and uh, well, you mind if I have a photograph taken?" And he was very friendly, very nice. Mm. Uh, unfortunately, the photograph is on one of my old mobile phones, and I've lost mm-hmm. it. So I, I don't know how to get it or. I think Damien's saying he's got the photograph, but uh, anyways, um, he uh, it, it's sad that uh, it happened with the AFL because he was ridiculed. Even Andrew Demetriou was uh, pretty rid- ridiculing him about his uh, performance. Mm. Uh, when you're a performer oh, well, like well, that, well, you know you can't like be. That. You, you know, you, you might do a hundred thousand performances in your lifetime. Can everyone be perfect? But you just get remembered by the one that's but, not. That's right, and I noticed that a lot of the when he died, a lot of the uh, news broadcasts here used the AFL footage. You know, when he was much better than that. I mean, the thing was, he broke the rules. He put a passion into songs. We always say that Elvis Presley was a passionate singer, but Meatloaf went to another level. He, when you watch him now, he really did, and he had a beautiful voice, and the passion that came through was just extraordinary. It was rock opera, uh, and I think the fact that yeah. he was a large person a- added to it too. You know, he had the handkerchief that he used to wave around and sweat, had long hair going everywhere. Yeah, and, and, he, and he wore a, dre- a dress suit with his gut hanging out over it, and he did and braces, and he didn't care, you know. But he he sang with such a passion, you know. You know? I'm sad that he didn't do more songs like "Bat Out of Hell," and then in the nineties he came back with. Uh, uh, I would do anything for love, and and that's pretty much it. We had the anniversary of one of the biggest tragedies uh, Australia has ever had, which is the Granville. Uh, in, in January 1977, I remember the day I went to my high school, Laylaw High School, to pick up my school books for that particular year, which was going to be my HSC year. I came back and uh, I remember hearing about this train tragedy and then watching it on television and it was like rolling coverage, which the TV stations had never done prior mm. to that. Uh, now, you were the editor of the Sydney Sun, when all that happened, yeah. what are your memories? Well, it happened, I think, at 8, 8.13 a.m., um, um, the train coming down from the Blue Mountains, and it, uh, it, it hit, hit the, uh, the curve a bit fast at Granville, went off the track, hit the bridge um, supports, and the bridge came down, and the bridge hit three carriages and killed 83 people and, I think, injured about 200. Um, I had just become editor of the, of the Sydney Sun, and I just started to campaign um, but you can believe in it, you know, trying to clean up the image of, tab- of a tabloid newspaper saying, you know, we will tell you the truth. You can believe in it, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm down what we call on the stone, which is when you're down just putting the paper to bed and about to send it off to, to, to be printed. And I get a call from upstairs saying, hey, there's been a huge accident, a uh, train crash at Granville. And I said, uh, oh, and people are dead. I said, how many are dead? And I said, well, we don't know, we'll get back to you. My, um, and keep in mind, this is with paper trying to be decent and honest and truthful. And uh, I get a call from my trusted police rounds reporter. His name is Graham Davis. And he said, hey, there's been a crash, trains crash, bridges come down. There's about three people dead. 
put on page one three dead maybe and we're right on deadline we've got a minutes are ticking by and suddenly i get a personal phone call on from a cadet and i'll never his name was murray trembath i'll never forget it he the cadet phones me and he says hey editor i'm at granville he said i'm being told by people who know i'm I'm talking to people on the ground he was he sounded in shock and his voice was trembling he said I've got to tell you, they're telling me more than 80 people are dead. And I'm thinking, three dead is a story, 80 dead is page one. And this is very clinical, I know, awful. That's what you do as an editor. And I said, are you sure? He said, I'm editor, I'm sure, I'm sure. So instead of going my seasoned police rounds reporter, I went with a young cadet and said, 80 people killed in a in train crash. And in the end, it was 83. Uh, uh, it was uh, it was the most awful story. We then sent journalists out to talk to people. And I, I, I'd, for the next day, I'd promoted, you know, minute by minute, which is unusual for Australian newspapers in those days, how Granville opened up and how it happened. And we're going to go back and talk to people who came from the Blue Mountains, who made the train, who missed the train, who lived after the train. And we promoted it on radio and also uh, in the next day's paper. And I got a call from a lawyer, from a politician's lawyer, wanting to know what's in the series tomorrow. And I said, what's it got to do with you? You know, I realised thinking back on it, I reckon that this politician had been having an affair with his mistress in the Blue Mountains and wanted to make sure the paper didn't have that bit <laughs> in the rundown to what happened at Granville. <laughs> <laughs> because I had about three calls from this uh, from this. Guy. You you know who the politician was? Or? No, no, I never found out. Never found out. But it was so tenacious, and I thought, why do you want to know what's in my series? On like we we blew over blurbed, you know, blow by blow, minute by minute. Who was on the train? Who wasn't on the train? Who got on the train? Who left home early? And I'm sure he thought, oh, my God, he sprung I'm going to be found chance. out, yeah. <laughs> uh, Keith McGowan, the uh, great radio broadcaster yeah. who uh, has since died, he was on the train. <clears throat> he uh, survived. Uh, yeah, I didn't know this. This is yeah, a fantastic story. Uh, he went to a phone box. He was working at 2UW in Sydney, uh-huh. and John Laws was the main guy then, mm-hmm. uh, doing mornings. And Keith rang through to the John Laws program. And there's audio tape of it, if we can get Damien to put it in this uh, podcast mm-hmm. uh, uh, where he, he talks about what happened and, and Laws in that big Laws voice sort of uh, it sounded a bit English too Laws back then uh, asks him the question Are there any uh, estimates of uh, injuries? No John but there's just bodies everywhere <laughs> How many people would you say have died? I don't know John and uh, there's no count being taken so far. I just can't. Well, the, the people in the carriage under the bridge, they couldn't get out of that. What? I thought it was just the carriage under the bridge at first, but then I had a look on the other side of the bridge and the locomotive's on its side and one carriage, all you can see is the floor of it, it's on its side. It's had the top ripped off it. The, the others have jackknifed into it. It's just dreadful. Where were you on the train? In the second last carriage. Uh, one carriage short of where the bridge came down. And was it an eight-train carriage? Uh, eight tra- eight-carriage train? 
Keith, it affected him, uh, and uh, every year on the anniversary of the train accident, he would ring the person who he was sitting next to on that train that day, which was, which was a lady, and they did that for something like uh, you know, thirty-eight, forty years until Keith died. Yeah, sometimes they'd meet up for lunch. Other times, when they couldn't, he would he would ring her up, and they'd talk. But uh, 83 people dead, <clears throat> a lot of people crushed. Uh, <clears throat> I remember the pictures of the, the bridge. Uh, the whole bridge came in on three carriages, yeah. People were found, it affected all the workers because people were found with playing cards in their hands. Like things you could do, or newspapers, things you do on your way to work on a morning. Uh, and so the dead bodies, and, and, and living people were trying to wave a hand out of a crushed train window there's mm. a, a story i shouldn't I, I shouldn't tell you but it is a podcast um there's very black humor often in newspaper offices when uh, things like this happen because you're looking at pictures of dead people and stuff and it, it, it's pretty grueling for, for for newspaper editors and sub-editors um and we as i said before we're running i've been running this public television campaign for you can trust the sun because we were we were two cents more expensive than the mirror uh, and it was, it was hurting us, you know. Um, and uh, anyway, and I'd said, you know, the sun, you can believe in it. You can believe in it. We are the, we're the honest paper, da-da-da. And we'd run a headline in the second edition saying 84 dead in Granville. Right? And it was 83. And I actually said to my deputy editors halfway through the morning, we're sweating on the numbers. And I said, shouldn't tell you this. I said, I tell you what. If it doesn't get 84, I'll go out there and shoot one myself. <laughs> oh. <laughs> uh. Because you, get, you have bad, you have sick humour, because you know, it keeps you going, believe it or not, yeah. at times yeah. like that. Well, you, 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 know. look, you, look, you look at pictures. I remember a case I've told you before of two spastic societies that have been called, two spastic society buses crashed. And there's kids, and deformed kids, um, engine you think what pitch can I, I can't use this i can't use that i can't use this and you're looking at these things every day you know and that's why you wonder how how coppers and and rescue staff cope with their lives sometimes yeah well you were a police reporter so yeah. uh, did you ever sort of do the death call where they you know you go to the, someone's house where there's been a tragedy and uh, you try and talk to them uh, which journos do yeah. uh, and they have to do worse than worse than that and sometimes you go out there and you duck down so the photographer get a picture of the, of the people right uh i remember going to a woman's door one morning because we were in the early rounds get up start work at 5 a.m and knock on somebody's door at 7 30 and i said to this woman how old was your daughter and she didn't know she was dead oh yeah how old was your daughter uh, because we got the, the, we got there before the cops did uh yeah, it was. I mean, looking back now, the stuff you wouldn't possibly do as a journo anymore, you know. But it was competition, you know. You had an opposition, and if you got beaten, you got scooped, you almost got fired. You know, it was a. You had to get there first and get it all. I mean, we used to joke about there's a the news service called Reuters, uh, and we used to joke about the, the Reuters slogan um, in Hong Kong. 
the, the Far East Bureau, we'd say, Reuters, we may be last, but we're always wrong. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, you know, the, the, the competition was that strong. I mean, I, got, well, I used to work for UPI, United Press International, and associate, I was in Toronto, and Associated Press, our, our rivals, beat us to a plane crash story by 30 seconds, and I got what we called a rocket, which is a, I got a complaint from the, 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 the desk in New York saying, why did you get beaten? 30 seconds, you get the story later. You know, that's how, that's how, how competitive it was. When you think back now, you know, you're in, you're in your 70s, uh, is there anything uh, that you remember about all of these, you know, stories that, you, that you've done where you, you, you think, oh, gee, uh, and, and has it affected you in any way? Because you're pretty resilient. You, you, you tend to, every day's a new day. Yeah, I, I, I feel that way. Um, no, look, it was it was the time. It was the it was the climate. That's what you did. It was part of your job. Uh, it didn't cross your mind. I remember missing a story once because I stopped off to before stopped to save a man's life whose car had overturned and caught fire on the way to Wollongong. And I got called by the news director and, and abused because you're not a fucking hero. He said you're here to get the story. Uh, that's what that's the the mood, and that was the attitude you worked in. At the time, you know, and and you're not you're 19 or 20, pretend to be 25, 26, pretend to be grown up, and that's there's no human resources people. I, mean, I sent, and I look back now, I talk about things you regret a bit. I after Granville, uh, uh, the night after, I sent an 18 year old female cadet out to door knock that night to get stories about survivors and and the families of dead ones. And that it didn't blink. I didn't blink about it. I mean, she was the rostered on journo to do the night shift, and that 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 included what we called death knocks. Mm. And you wanted her to come back with something that you could put in the yeah, paper that, yeah. that would uh, give people more information. Yeah. Uh, whatever happened mention. to the Sydney Sun, Darren? It's, it's no, no longer it, it, around. No longer. It cl closed down eventually. Um, I've closed a lot of papers actually. The Taranaki Herald doesn't exist anymore, and neither does the. I think the Waikato Times has maybe gone weekly and the Christchurch Star doesn't exist and the Sydney Sun was closed down. So that's my four papers I've worked for don't exist anymore. Um, the Sydney Sun and the, the afternoon newspaper field got so shot so battered that both the mirrors gone. We had the opposition as the mirror, Daily Mirror, Murdoch's paper. So, so they were they were both afternoon papers, both like, afternoon like the papers, Herald yeah. here was uh, yes, here in yeah. Melbourne. And, 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 and like the Herald here in Melbourne, in the end, afternoon papers couldn't sustain. Um, people stopped buying them. Uh, uh, it was a, um, it's, I mean, the old days, people would always buy the local tabloid and read on the train going home. But things changed and afternoon papers couldn't sustain. Morning papers are in trouble. I, I suspect uh, the print versions of the Melbourne Herald, and the, sorry, the Melbourne Age and the, uh, the Sydney Morning Herald may disappear. I mean, I, I, I was always reading all my papers in, in print mode. Now I, I read papers online. Just tell me, though, about the, the Sun. Now, you got in at what time as the editor? Uh, I came back, well, okay. Look, I came back from New York with a lot of New York ideas, and I made, became editor, I became deputy editor, and I said, if I'm not editor in six months, I'll leave. And I was editor in six weeks. Uh, and Sir Warwick Fairfax gave me carte blanche. So I changed the masthead, which is a huge thing to do. 
changed the masthead, um, got rid of the page three bikini girl, which they'd had for years and years. Every why I don't know. I mean, they had a, a girl in a bikini on page, take them all to page three, the second news page with a bikini girl every day. So I got rid of that. Uh, I put in a center spread of, of photos, uh, which I'd seen in the New York Daily News, and I liked that idea. And uh, I, I tried to clean the paper up and put out honest posters. I mean, still still enticing posters, but honest ones, you know. I mean, not like the Daily Mirror opponents. Mark Day was, I think, was the editor. Had a poster saying, Whitlam divorce. That was the main, that's all you saw in the headline, right? Whitlam divorce. The, this little strapper up the top said, lies, says Margaret. <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, the, the thing is, I don't understand how uh, Mark Day would think that that actually, you know, it might increase the circulation of that particular day, but th the next time people the, see yeah, a headline like that, they're not going to believe it. Well, when I first got to Australia, I've told the story once before, so I'll keep it brief. Uh, I wasn't used to tabloid um, posters, and uh, I'm watching, I'm working for the Sydney Sun, I'm watching the Mirror, and their first edition poster was... Um, you know, Liz Taylor ill. Now, Liz Taylor was the most famous film star in the world at the time, and that was a great poster. The second edition said, Liz fading. Third edition said, film star dies. And the film star who died was on about page 30. It was George Formby. It wasn't <laughs> Elizabeth Taylor at all. She'd had a tracheotomy in some hospital in, in, in London. <laughs> now, you'd think that would stop people buying the paper because you're being conned. Yes. You're, you're buying a false product every yes. day. Yes. But, but when, what, what time was the deadline? Like, uh, you know, it was a daily paper, so... Oh, oh the, well, the first deadlines were about... Uh, oh, the back pages you'd print you'd you'd set a lot of back pages the day before uh and the feature pages and things like that but the the front about the first five seven news pages you could keep stuff coming in for most pages till about 7 seven thirty a.m in the morning right yep. in the morning uh but page one you could sweat it out till eight o'clock as i said um and that was a real stress because like with granville we talked about it was granville happened at eight thirteen. And my paper had to go to bed. The, the, the sheets had to be set away to be printed um, by at least eight fifteen, eight twenty. So to be out on the street at what time? Uh, be printed out on the street by about quarter to ten. Right. Yeah, and then and then I, I as part of my new look of the of the sun, repainted all the uh, sun newspaper trucks in very bright colours, so that people would see the paper being delivered. I made one huge mistake, and I'll admit to it. Every morning by taxi, I'd send a copy of The Sun, the first edition, to John Laws, all right, because he was the king of radio. Now, he would take the paper, rip off the stories, put them on radio, and by the time people bought my paper driving home, going home on the train, that's how I heard that. It was on the John Laws show. You know, so you were scooping yourself. It was stupid. <laughs> it was really stupid. During the day, if something happened, let's say something happened at 10 a.m., could you then reprint? Or... Oh, we would. No, yeah, we, 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 we would run eight, eight editions a day. Sometimes they wouldn't change, but sometimes you could, you, you could change 
page one until like three o'clock in the afternoon. Right. And uh, just yeah, quickly, so, because we're running out of time, but right. uh, the, the whole, the whole organisation, The Sun, you know, you talked about uh, the trucks being painted and whatever. It sounds like a big, big, opera, big enterprise. How many people work there to keep this paper going? I think when I was editor, I think I had 3,000 staff. Wow. That all disappeared. <laughs> of, them, of them, only, well, only 110 would have been journalists. But even that's massive, you know. I mean, these days when you go on a television jo job, people come to interview me, um, there's, there's one cameraman, one cameraman and a camera, and they dial dial up somebody on a portable phone. You hold the phone and talk to somebody in a journo in Brisbane, you know. Um, so it, it's changed immensely. Even when I did the Hinch program on television, we had a staff around the country of probably 60, 55, 60 people. Well, you know, I, I would be stunned if the Age, or even the Herald, had anything like that number yeah. of people. Not, any, uh, not anymore. I mean, well, in the bureau in New York, when I was bureau chief, I had a staff of, um, I think, me and seven other journalists in New York for Fairfax, and one in Washington, and one in LA. And I was the bureau chief for, for that team, you know. So, I mean, it was, they were, that's, those days have gone, you know, uh, sadly, but uh, they have. Uh, but they were, the, people were better served because you, it was all done by, by your independence, you know, not by news services or, 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 or collaboration. And uh, the power you wielded as an editor, you know, first of all, you had an enterprise of 3,000 people. Uh, secondly, you could put stories on the paper that would change people's opinion, you know, rock the political establishment, uncover corruption, whatever it was. So you, you, you as an editor had enormous power. Uh, did, yeah, you ever, did you ever not run anything, Darren, um, that you should have, do you think? No, I, um, well, I've been in trouble lately. Uh, if you've been on Twitter or I'm a celebrity, Toddy Goldsmith's been having a go at me several times. Uh, I meant to talk fact. to you about that, yeah. yes. Well, she's saying because because she got caught with cocaine in her bag at a music festival somewhere in Victoria, and uh, I reported it. Uh, and Toddy's been going out recently saying, you know, I was a family friend and I should have supported her and a boyfriend put the cocaine in her bag and da-da-da. She's never, ever named the boyfriend, Um um, and then people on Twitter saying, oh, Hinch, put the, Hinch must have put the drugs in your bag. I said, I was 100 kilometres away. I've never, I've, I've never been out, been, a, been involved with Toddy. I know her family very well. I know her father. But if I hadn't report, I wasn't the first person to report it, but if I hadn't reported it, they'd say, Hinch is covering up for a friend. I mean, this news was out that Toddy Goldsworth had drugs in her bag. And that was the news story, and that's what I reported. But... Um, She's uh, come back all these years, it must be 15 years ago, but she's come back now saying it was all my fault and I destroyed her career and Derby Derby. And so, Apparently she's never she, named the boyfriend. She, she came up to you at a cafe or restaurant or something. Do you remember? Even, it was, yeah. yeah. Uh, the story that, I, uh, that they told on, on Celebrity uh, was that she turned up to me and I, helped, I hung my head in shame or something like that and couldn't answer her. I said, look, I've been stared down by Mick Gatto, for Christ's sake. You know, I'm, I'm not going to worry about that. Her boyfriend threatened to throw up. This the current boyfriend wanted to throw a punch at me. But, I mean, all I did was report. I'll, I'll grant, I did, it was around the time that Paris Hilton had been caught with drugs in her handbag in Vegas. 
And uh, and so I must admit, after reporting the, the, the Totty story, I said, oh, sounds like the Paris Hilton defence because she'd said, I didn't put them there. You know? But but Totty's never, ever mentioned the name of the boyfriend. She mentions my name all the time, but it was 15 years ago, for God's sake. Mm, mm. Well, but, but people said, oh, I should have kept it quiet as a family friend. Well, I mean, I, I can't do that. If I'd have covered it up, you, people would have said, oh, Hinch didn't do that story, but he did it about so-and-so, but because she's a family friend, he didn't do the story. Well, I, you know, that's the way life is. Yep, that's, uh, that's it. Uh, Darren, we've run out of time again. Uh, fascinating talking to you again about all those memories of the Sydney Sun and the Granville train disaster, which... Uh, uh, it was a big thing that happened in in Sydney. Uh, I tell you, on, you would have remembered, I think, on my 3AW wall, I had a poster from the Sydney Sun, only one, and it had a picture of the bridge collapse at Granville. And the headline headline just said, Carnage, Carnage. Mm. Oh, actually, I and, remember and seeing I, that, yeah. And I kept it on my wall for 20 years. You know, We're going right. way over time, but I just wanted to touch on one other thing. On the twenty oh. second of February, three uh, AW celebrates ninety years of being on air. Opened twenty uh, second of February, nineteen thirty two. How wonderful! They'll get, they'll, get, they'll get it right soon. <laughs> How wonderful would it be if it got together all of the old presenters that are still alive? Like you, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd love that. I'd love that. I actually, yeah, Simon Owens has been in touch with me. Um, maybe they must be doing some special reports on it, and I'm, I'm more than happy to be involved. Or, yeah, I mean, my, my years at AW were, were, were fantastic, and the listener support was was amazing over the years. You know, so I'm thrilled. Darren, have All a right. good week. Right. Bye, sunshine. Ciao.